Hello, hello, my dearest peace lovers and peacemakers. I'm Sarah Jamshidi, along with Mateen Rokhsefad. Welcome to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. We live stream our show on many social media, including Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and also on many podcast channels. Extremely easy to find us. Just uh, search Peace Mindedly, and there you go. We are in front of your eyes. Today is the second Tuesday of March. It's noon Pacific Standard Time, and we are so thrilled to join you to start the amazing conversation. For today, we are talking with Medina Tenor Whiteman author of The Invisible Muslim Journeys Through Whiteness and Islam. Medina is a poet, writer, musician, translator, as well as Anglo-American born to Sufi convert parents. Over the next hour, she will talk to us about her white privilege background that has not helped her feel at home with other with other Muslims. Absolutely amazing uh, script. The prose was beautiful. As I read her book, I found myself immersed in a word I did not know existed. When I finished the book, I didn't know I was so oblivious to the types of experiences Medina describes in her book. Most of the Muslims I know are either from Middle East or they do not have European background. Like myself, many of them speak English with an accent or their features show they are not white. But what about white people who are absolutely full-fledged Muslims but do not necessarily fit into our common perception of Muslimhood? Really, do we welcome them when talking about the Ummah, the whole community of Muslims bound together by ties of religion? Well, for today's show, we are going to talk to someone who has articulated our ignorance so poetically that we cannot help but listen. Medina Tenor Whiteman has already published a collection of poetry called Love a Traveler and We Are Its Path, as well as a travel guidebook that is Homa's Travel Guide to Islamic Spain. I am bringing Medina to our screen. Hello, hello, Medina. Welcome Hi to there. Peace Mind. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. In her most recent book, The Invisible Muslim Journeys Through Whiteness and Islam, she talks about her experience of praying with Muslims in Tibet and Ladakh, summering in a Turkish fishing village, spending Nauru's in Iran while contemplating women's eyebrows, searching for intimacy in Sarajevo, digging into her Spanish roots in Andal Andalusia, and finding love in Lacuna. Medina, Medina, so welcome to Peace Mindedly. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So for a starter, I would like to see... I'm just going to jump into the heart of the question you are raising. What it, what it feels to be a white Muslim? What it feels? Well, it's funny because um, I was writing for a period of time. Well, I still do occasionally uh, contribute to a journal called Critical Muslim, which is published from London. And it's published by Hearst, which is uh, the publisher of The Invisible Muslim. And so the... 
deputy editor of Critical Muslim, who is a lovely dear friend, Samia Rahman, she suggested to me, you know, you've got a very interesting kind of overlap of different experiences here. And I love the way you write. Why don't you pitch a book about your experiences as a white Muslim? And initially I just cringed very, very badly. I mean, it was such a cringe. It went on for about, I think it must have been about five years because um, occasionally she'd sort of nudge me and she'd say, what, what about that book? Why don't you go ahead and write it? Because I think it would be really interesting. And and part of me would say, well, yeah, there's a, a, a lot of, there are some interesting questions there that could definitely turn into a book, but how would I even start? And I just felt this horrible blockage because I thought I don't want to draw any attention to my whiteness at all. You know, if anything, I felt that um, being Muslim would be, uh, potentially be a kind of a an exit strategy from whiteness, you know. But unfortunately, that was quite a naive, uh, a, a naive idea, really, because you know you can't change the color of skin that you're in. I mean, you can alter it. Obviously, there are people who, even people who will claim to be ethnically fluid and and change their ethnicity. But um, you know, the body that you're born into, there's not very much you can really do to it. And I think it's probably better overall to try and accept it and and recognize that there's some maybe some wisdom in it as well, that you've been placed into this place at this time and that there's so, some purpose to it. I wonder uh, why you didn't really want to tap into this notion of whiteness when you started the book. Well, I think it's, part of it is because I don't really have a particularly positive idea of whiteness. I mean, especially if you look at um, the way that whiteness has been used politically for 500 years, probably more, starting with, in fact, the location that I'm in, the south of Spain, is a really critical place in that whole narrative and that whole st that whole story because the Muslims of Spain were portrayed as being foreign, as being not white, as not being uh, European. And that gave legitimacy to uh, a coalition of armies because in that time in medieval Europe, there weren't unified countries, really. There were just lots of different kingdoms and principalities. So you had the kingdom of Navarra, Castilla, Leon, all these different kind of kingdoms. And they banded together. Sometimes they would use Muslim mercenaries, in fact. But eventually they kind of pushed Al-Andalus, they squashed it and condensed it into this one emirate of Granada. So I'm I'm in this this area now. In fact, the, the mountains where I live is the last area, the last stronghold of Muslims, Muslim resistance. But And but it was also a brutal, brutal treatment against yeah. Muslims in 15th century that you are mentioning in yeah. your book. Can you just very quickly explain what was happening then? So the Muslims of Spain were very diverse because actually the vast majority of them were converts. So the people who lit, who exist in the Iberian Peninsula originally, there were Iberian Celts, there were Jews, there were Visigothic Christians who were Aryan uh, Unitarian Christians. It was pretty diverse. And also being in the Mediterranean, on the Mediterranean Sea and having these, these two um, shores, well, one shore really, you had... North African influence, you had uh, Sicilian influence, you had Greek influence, you had Persian influence. There were people from all over the world who were arriving, Syrians, who had made their way there. So it was a very, very diverse uh, environment. It would have been very diverse ethnically. So, for example, the last, one of the last kings, actually he wasn't one of the last kings, but one of the kings of Granada who built uh, a, a large portion of the Alhambra, who the Alhambra is named after, who was called Alhamar. He was called Alhamar because he was redheaded. So he he looked like he could have been from Northern Europe. He could have been from Lebanon because, of course, we have lots of variety in in the Middle East also. 
as uh, you know in Iran there's an area called Gilan where people are very light skinned they have blonde hair blue eyes green eyes my my thesis i wanted to put across in this book is that the world is much more diverse than we tend to think and the muslim world is much more diverse than we tend to think so white muslims is, is only one section of that really and this is one area that i concentrated on because it's it's born of my own experience and i think speaking about your own experience is much more powerful it's it's more intriguing it gives more interest because you you have vignettes you have actual stories that you can speak from personal experience Ta talking about personal experience so in this book we are in many countries yeah. and we are seeing many rituals many uh, lots of experiences so how many countries do you travel do you cover in this uh, in this book in this book, um, so I was actually in, I didn't make it into Tibet, sadly. I would have loved uh -huh. to have gone to Tibet, but I was in Ladakh, which is part Ladakh. of India. Although uh -huh. culturally, it's it's thought of as, it's a former part of the, the Tibetan Empire. So it's culturally much closer to Tibetan than anything else. Uh, so India, Spain, the UK, Bosnia, um, Iran, and Tanzania and Kenya, which I sort of treated as one... This was actually quite a complicated chapter to talk about because I spent um, a longish period of time there. I was there for about six weeks to begin with in Kenya. And wait, I can't even remember how. I think, no, I was in a certain number of weeks in Mombasa, in Lamu. And then I was in Zanzibar, which is part of Tanzania. But the Swahili coast has a lot of commonalities, uh, particularly the islands. You know, there, there's always been a lot of movement uh, among them. I mean, technically, there are different countries now, Kenya and Tanzania, but I treated it as, as sort of one experience because I had to cram so much into one one period. Oh, and Turkey as well. I knew I was forgetting something. Yes, I yes, Turkey. About Turkey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, it sounds horribly, it, it sounds like I'm boasting about my travels, but really this is about sort of 20 years of experiences all sort of boiled down to the, all, of the, all of the gems. So uh, lots of boring things happened to me in between. <laughs> Exactly. Um, I'm not boring, but I was thinking, okay, so the book itself took five years to write. And then my next question or related question was how many, uh, how many years are you covering uh, within this experience? And it seems that about 20 years of, you know, contemplation, oh. traveling and all of those. Yeah, more? I think more because I think I huh. start I start at the beginning with uh, my birth and how it was, <laughs> there was yeah. this kind of uh, complication with my birth certificate and my name. And of course, yeah. you know, if you have a foreign looking name, which doesn't translate into Latin letters very well, it sort of throws bureaucracy out. People get a bit freaked out about it. So I had, uh, from the very beginning, I've had a lot of bureaucratic issues. Uh, my name was spelt wrong on my birth certificate which meant oh then that I was, <laughs> I've basically been a foreigner everywhere I've ever lived. <laughs> but the thing that kind of struck me in, and why I decided I, I needed to sit down and write this book, partly just to clear my head and go through all of these experiences and put it all into, into some kind of logical, coherent uh, narrative is to understand it for myself, but also to point out that, you know, for me as a white person, as a white woman, I'm blonde, I look Northern European, I haven't really ever suffered because of that. Whereas another person living in the UK whose background may be from parents from the Indian subcontinent or from North Africa or from anywhere else in Africa or anywhere else in the world, to be a foreigner means something very different. And so this is where this is where the white privilege thing starts to come in and it starts to be highlighted and comes up more and more and more, obviously, until it's completely unavoidable and irrefutable, in fact. 
And at that point, I sort of thought, okay, this is when I need to start sitting down and writing this. Mm-hmm. But yet again, we're going to talk about white privilege and all of those. But yet again, the whole premises of the book is you feel outsider within yeah. the community. Yeah. Um, and, and then at the same time, I found that so growing up, I think that's a very difficult experience for anybody, whatever your background is, whatever the reasons might be for you to feel like an outsider. For me, it was like an invisible reason because outwardly it didn't look like I I I didn't fit in. It didn't look like I was I was foreign. I didn't look out of place particularly. I didn't dress in a particular I would occasionally be like, oh yeah, I'm gonna try and wear a head wrap and like, you know, assert my identity, but then people would be so weirded out by it. And I felt so overwhelmed by the burden of their judgments, really, that mm-hmm. I especially as a young person, I couldn't really handle it. And being alone, I think, really, really affected my my whole process there if you have a a sense of community if you have five other people who are like you if you have 10 other people who are like you in your vicinity in your environment it really changes things but if you really feel like you are the only one (laughs) that is going through your personal experience in your whole school for example in your home town in your whole town it makes you feel very very isolated because you just don't have anyone to talk to and you know, having elders as well, seeing people who are older than you who have gone through those experiences is really valuable because then you can you can see what, what they've gone through and how they've come to terms with whatever their, their weirdness is. Um, I use the word weirdness in a, a fond way. <laughs> um, then it, it's a huge help. But because of the way that my my parents had converted at a time when there was a number of people who also converted around that, that around that period, but they, it was it was relatively new. Like it wasn't. It was kind of there have there have been people converting to Islam for hundreds of years in in the West and in, in Europe and in the US. But there was kind of a wave, you know, around about sort of nineteen seventy early early nineteen seventies. Definitely, it's not the case now. But I, before we go to a new subject, I wanted to see how your children, I know that you are three kids, how your children are dealing with, do they have the same issue as you did back when you were growing up? Are are they curious about Islam or Muslims or they just don't care and say, hey? I think <laughs> they're quite ambivalent about it. I mean, my older two are a bit more kind of like, yeah, we're part-time Muslims when we're at mum's house kind of thing. <laughs> part-time Muslim. <laughs> I mean, they're also still kids, yeah. so wait, wait and see. Uh, who knows? Inshallah, something will, will stick. Uh, I'd, I'd just like it to be a kind of... I'd like it to be something that actually helps them in their lives, you know? Like, here is something that you can look to that might actually bring you peace. Kind of calm through anxiety or through, you know, some kind of hope when you feel down. You know, that's what I wanted to be for them rather than being like, this is your seal this is the stamp that i'm putting on you and you're never gonna change how the religion has really worked on you how being muslim or prayers or poems or anything has or has had bring peace uh, to you oh my gosh that's a very big question (laughs) so well or has it oh absolutely absolutely i mean that's the that's the reason why it's something that i haven't wanted to abandon i've wanted to kind of integrated as much into my life as as possible without isolating myself from everything else as well because I felt that talking about world about bridging 
I've always felt like I, I am kind of physically a bridge between these two sort of worlds that I don't want to abandon either one of them because I, I value both, you know. So here's my kind of Islamic family, you know, my ummah, and I feel connected to them. And even though I don't necessarily have a, you know, like a, um, a sort of Islamic homeland to kind of look to, for example, or a home culture to to associate with, at the same time, there are so many people who are very, very generous and generous-spirited people who are very, very welcoming and who you don't need to share a culture with them. You have a culture because you have Islam. You know, you can pray side by side with them. You can sing salawat. You can sing, you know, durud. You can have these experiences together. You can fast Ramadan together. You can just chill and talk or you can do zikr. And you have this very beautiful bond. It's a real, real kind of sisterhood or brotherhood. But then, you know, I don't want to um, cut ties with non-Muslims either because I feel like they're people who maybe have curiosity, maybe they are interested, or maybe they actually have an aversion. But if you present a friendly face, maybe those are the people who would, you know, maybe get over their aversion through that kind of experience. So I kind of feel like it's really important to maintain those, those ties and those connections. So where is this aversion coming from? I remember I was reading the book and you were talking about if I, I mean, I'm just speaking out of my mind or what I remembered, but basically we need to, we need to understand that many of the glory that we take for granted has been built on non-white, like slavery and non-white labor. So I wonder what is this aversion and how, how would you how would you see it? Well, there's some very interesting theories around that, actually. Um, in fact, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing has a brilliant theory about white supremacy and how anti-blackness particularly would, but in, in, in a way it sort of extends into all kinds of racism where it comes from. And she's, she believes that it's it's like a very deep psychological fear of annihilation, which is interesting because, you know, thanatophobia is the fear of death is thought to be the, the root of all fear. And so she says that because whiteness genetically is recessive and it's something that eventually will kind of could disappear. Theoretically, this is the sort of the great replacement theory that a lot of white supremacists have. There's this actual kind of an, a, um, a visceral terror being lost or of sort of disappearing from the earth or of your culture or your heritage because it's not just about whiteness in terms of your body it's not just about that in fact that's a very small part of whiteness is is the physical side of it and actually it's so small it's almost negligible because there are people who could classify themselves as non-white but actually look very pale skin you know there are people who are from turkey for example who say i'm white you know but maybe a british white person might say you're not white you know what I mean? So there's there's a lot there are lots of kind of gradients there and ways in which people have been othered and judged and labeled and categorized. You know, this person is here on the scale kind of thing. So you have to be quite careful about that. But it's not just that. It's also cultural, cultural oh, chauvinism. That's the word. Mm-hmm. Cultural chauvinism. So this idea that white European culture is elevated. So it's our literature. It's our music. It's our institutions, it's our books, it's our thinking. All of these things are superior, our politics. So white supremacy is actually very kind of many tentacled. It has all these different sort of facets to it. 
And I think there is this, there is a kind of a, it's, it's irrational. It's completely subconscious. For most people that it's not coming up into their conscious mind, because if they were to bring in the conscious mind, you could have a conversation about it. You could critique it. You could discuss it and maybe overcome that fear. But there's this kind of subconscious fear that we have created something so glorious and brilliant and it's going to be lost. So okay. it's going to be lost. I mean, all, almost all of the civilizations I know are, has rise and falls. Like we had Persian Empire and, oh, my God, the Persians were God. And now they're, I mean, just struggling for every, <laughs> just struggling day and night. Or it was Ottoman Empire and now it's down. It was the Islamic glory time. Now it's down. So it's the uh, white supremacy up and then it's going to down. And who knows what's going to go up for the next idea ideas and set of ideas. But I would like to go back to Iran since we are talking about the Persian Empire. I I know that you were just keep kept talking about, uh, writing about uh, eyebrows and female eyebrows. I want to know, I want to know what was the, what was the case. What was the motivation? You are right, Iranians are just so obsessed about eyebrows. But it was funny, when you write a book, when you when you try and kind of bring together lots of experiences and thoughts and ideas and history and research and personal kind of reflections, you have to kind of hang it on a particular theme or a, a scene. You know, I like to I like I like writing fiction as well and and scripts and things like this and like setting a scene creating a vignette is a very good kind of container for then you can pause it it's like being in a movie you know you can hit pause and then you can have a little discussion and kind of go back into history or you can talk about etymology you can sort of talk about all kinds of other things and then go back into the scene again or go into a different scene so the, for me the scene the one scene that really stood out in my mind from being in Iran was going to the beauty salon of my sister-in-law and mashallah she's such a wonderful person I hope she watches this and uh, it's the it was the first time I'd ever had my eyebrows done because of course you know if I have these little puny piddly little blonde eyebrows there's nothing to do right there's not there's hardly anything there so it was um it was kind of a terrifying experience partly because I was there on my own so my husband wasn't in in the this is a female space right so women they take their hijab off they take their their manteau off and um, it was a very beautiful space. It was wonderful. You know, the, the Isfand, they put the Isfand into the incense, into the little burn and put it in the gas fire and burn the incense, you know, to take away the, the chasm, the, the evil eye. And all the sort of chatter and the whole kind of ritual around it, it was really, I, was, I felt very privileged to be in that space, but I couldn't really understand what was going on. So I was also a little bit kind of... On a, on a back foot and nervous about it. And then, you know, you get put in this sort of beauty salon chair. It's almost like the dentist chair or something, you know, like there's something painful is going to happen to you. It's going to be a little bit torturous. <laughs> and then, you know, so she she did, she threaded my eyebrows. I was like, wow, I'm amazed that she found something to thread. And, uh, oh, and this as well, again, hadn't ever done that before. Yes, or, yes. Or since. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all looking at me like, they're looking at each other like, it's her first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, and then, uh, and then, uh, yeah, and that was it. She did the eyebrows and then she sort of looked at the other sister and she's like, anything else? And the other one says, like this. And I was like, it was like she did this, you know. <laughs> So, I mean, for the people who are not watching, the, she, she, she showed the upper lip. 
And then you yeah. thought that she's talking about cutting the Yeah, it was <laughs> like having like, run a finger across her throat. But this is all because it, again, because it's something that I hadn't I hadn't been part of that kind of ritual. And we don't I, have it in, in UK, we don't have anywhere in like London. I mean, I mean I'm sure they in, do do it. I'm sure there are people who do it. Oh, we have wax. Not, we have yeah. wax, huh? Yeah, we do. And yeah. I think there are people who thread eyebrows. And in this in the south of Spain as well, people are more like they'll go and get their armpits done and they, you know, bikini line done. But it's just something mm -hmm. I'd never, I'd never really thought about even doing. It wasn't a high up on my kind of concerns. But then I realized also being, I stood at a bus stop as also and saw this girl who must have been about 15 or something. And she had this very brilliant red lipstick on, but large eyebrows, you know, like unplucked eyebrows. They're beautiful. Mm -hmm. you know, the sort of eyebrows that actually in Northern Europe and the US are now becoming really fashionable you know, but it was clear that she hadn't started, she hadn't embarked on that kind of monthly routine. And then it's like, okay, once you begin, you can't ever end, you can't go out of that. I mean, I don't know, I'm sure people do. But it's like, that's a ritual that is is sort of so kind of embedded in in this particular culture. And like also going to the, the swimming pool, I went to the swimming pool with uh, one of my my husband's families, I think she's a neighbor, or I don't know, extended family and it was all all women again this is something that we don't experience in Europe we don't have fem female only bathing mm -hmm. and uh you know going into the the hot tub all of the like the, most of the women actually were sitting on the around the side of the hot tub and there was one woman kind of floating in the middle like she was actually singing it was very beautiful but again it was like the steam room it was like the hammam you know this this is something that we don't really have in in not in Europe, northern Europe at all so mm -hmm. it was quite a special thing to be uh, to be invited into that space. Mm -hmm. So we, we talked about Iran. In Turkey, I just didn't understand what happened that you all of a sudden left and and left the village and came to a different city. So what happened? Or in in uh, Ladakh, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, yeah. I know that what's happening in the city. But all of a sudden you disappear and you appear in a different place. So what, what's, what's happening? Between Turkey and, well, the thing is that there's lots of time that's kind of elapsing and that is not being described because it's, it's, it's impossible to fit it all in. So in, in India, I went to India specifically to go on a trek in, um, in Ladakh, which is partly part of the Himalayas. So I flew into Delhi and I had one a couple of days in Delhi, which were really magical for me. I know a lot of people find Delhi a bit overwhelming. I had very special experiences there. And then what kind of what do you mean a special experience in what way? Um, so I was I, I wanted to go to an internet cafe because it was that long ago that we didn't have smartphones. Um, so I had to find an internet cafe to send mm -hmm. an email to my family to say yes, I've I've arrived, and and I got somebody to take me on a kind of a rickshaw he gave me on a little little tour actually to get me to this this internet cafe and then I noticed a couple of domes of what I assume must have been a mosque they looked like a mosque and they were striped with black and white which was quite unusual and I said is that a mosque because I wanted to go in and pray and he said uh yeah I guess so but I I couldn't see any door so I sort of walked around and I found this little sort of back path with like a cow tethered and it was like the back it was going on to people's backyards I was going through people's backyards and I got into this mosque which was there was only a woman there sewing with a hand sewing machine it was so tranquil and so beautiful 
this large overgrown I don't think it was a jasmine but it was some kind of fragrant flower bush with some like lovebirds in it I mean it was so beautiful and all these little dried flowers all over the the mat so I, I went in and prayed and and obviously this this woman was kind of looking at me like okay is she a tourist is she what is she doing in here and uh, it must have been a bit surprised, but she was so lovely. She invited me to her house, so we ate, and it turned out she didn't really speak English, but her daughter did, so we, we talked lots and lots. It was very, very sweet, and those are the kind of experiences that, you know, I was I was uh, privy to, and I had the privilege of having because I was Muslim. So, you know, by going to a mosque and making this connection with somebody and not even necessarily having the same language, like verbally, you have a cultural language, you have a religious language that you share. And so immediately we we forged a bond, mm -hmm. which was which was beautiful. I wonder what really Islam has that you feel you, you invest so much in it. Well, I think for me, for me, Islam is all about God. And uh, you can add other things to it, but it's mostly that's mostly peripheral. Right. And so it's almost like. It's almost like a fractal, you know, you go keep going into it and it keeps kind of expanding and you go into it more and it keeps expanding and you go into it more and you, it keeps expanding. So it never gets boring, you know, but it's it's I guess this is where mysticism will come into it and where it overlaps with lots of other kinds of religions and, and spiritualities and and forms of mysticism, because once you go into that space, it's like it's like how Buddhists talk about emptiness. You know, because you're taking away things, you're taking away concepts, you're taking away objects, and you're going into kind of a different dimension, really. So for me, this is uh, Sufism is very much um, angled in that in that uh, direction, but it comes out of Islam. Like the simplest, the simplest thing in Islam is just a shahada. You know, just bearing witness to divine unity, and that alone. I mean, you could spend a whole lifetime just pondering that. You know. mm -hmm. Yes. When we come back, I'm going to ask about Sufism and about other questions, but please stay put. You are watching to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. We find these peaceful bridge makers and they are some of the best in the world. We find them and we feature them in our show. We are live streaming across most social media, including Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter. And do check us out on podcast channels. If you miss any show, please go to goldtoon.com, a peace journalism website that I manage with a group of talented editors and correspondents to, to bring peace journalism. And of course, feel free to submit your emails to our newsletter. We send one email every week on Thursdays, and we just keep you updated about what's going on with us and, and within the peace journalism platform next tuesday we are talking to ron burke the filmmaker behind terror and hope the science of resilience and Rana Dajani, a researcher who has used cutting-edge technology to prove that we can find happiness in the bleakest places like Syrian children refugee, refugee camps. 
We air our show every Tuesday, and this is uh, by now, uh, I, I'm hoping that you know that it's every Tuesday at noon. So for the following Tuesday, we are talking to Olga Mekking, author of Nixon, Embracing the Dutch Art of Doing Nothing, who will tell us why we should relax more often and not really take ourselves or things around us too seriously, especially during the pandemic. The, fi- uh, the final Tuesday of March, we are talking to Suzanne Kobel, foreign correspondent for German periodical Der Spiegel. Uh, she's a author of Behind the Kingdom's Veil, Inside the New Saudi Arabia Under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. This episode is definitely a show that you do not want to miss because we are going to talk about women in Saudi Arabia as well as the murder of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Back to this hour, we are talking to Medina Tenur-Whiteman, poet, writer, musician, and author of The Invisible Muslim, Journeys Through Whiteness and Islam. So, Medina, I, I love Sufism. I, I studied Sufism since I was 16 years old. And um, we are talking about mysticism. So here's my question. I mean, some, oftentimes Islam feels so rigid, and so instructional. Mm-hmm. And with Sufism, I can just feel uh, some some form of softness, some form of mm-hmm. kindness and love uh, within this uh, the fabric of the religion. And I would like to know what Sufism really really has or or offers that gives me this kind this sense of uh, this sense of understanding. Mm. Well, I, I see where you're coming from. I, I can't say I'm any kind of authority on Sufism at all. But from a personal from my personal experience, what I feel is that it represents the feminine quality of Islam. And so there's the, the law is the masculine quality, not to say male and female, because men and women, of course, can have all of these qualities, but that one is um, structural, whereas one is free-flowing. It's like the skeleton versus the blood of the body, you know, and you kind of need both to some extent or another, because if you don't have any kind of structure at all, then you can be vulnerable. And unfortunately, Sufis have been very vulnerable. They've been under attack by by Wahhabis and Salafis in um, in many parts of the world, not just doctrinally under attack, but physically under attack. And, you know, mausoleums and mosques have been attacked and people have been attacked. And it's it's an ongoing problem, actually. But for me, it's sort of, um, I mean, you can speak to different people and everyone will give you a different idea of what Sufism is. It's kind of the the quizzical aspect of it is that it, it doesn't really lend itself to being kind of pinned down into a five-word description. People have described it in lots of different ways. For example, one, one of them is um, is Ihsan. So there's a, a narration in which the Prophet Muhammad had a visitation from the angel Gabriel and they sat sat opposite him and their, their knees were touching they were kneeling and their knees were touching and he gave him this these instructions about islam iman islam and um ihsan i probably got that in the wrong direction in the wrong uh, order but that it so islam is surrender or submission from the same root as salam so it's a peaceful uh, act it's not an act of you know being forced to surrender against your will and then iman is is faith again it's related to Amana means having a, it's like protection. So it's to do with protection as well. And then Ihsan 
is excellence but it's related to hasana which is goodness and beauty as well so this is one of the lovely things about arabic is that words have many facets to them you know many languages have this quality of course but in arabic in particular hasana husn is goodness and it can also mean it's related to beauty so ihsan is excellence but it's really about goodness and beauty and uh, so people will often point to Sufism or Tasawwuf is the, the Arabic name for it as being related to that aspect. So there's submission can be um, a very practical thing, just surrendering to having a particular order to your day, you know, to having the five prayers, for example. And then Iman is, is what's going on inside of your heart, you know, are you actually doing it with intention, with presence? And so I think the fact that it's so difficult to define is is kind of part of it, really. Mm -hmm. Yes, I understand. So I would like to go back to the book. The book itself is written really beautiful. Two questions. I wonder whether or not you're a musician and you know music really well. I wonder whether or not music and your sense of knowing music really helped you when you were writing the words or editing your, your writings. You know, that's an interesting question. I hadn't thought of that, but I'm sure it probably does because being a singer, I've noticed that it, it's, it attunes me to language. So I, I'm able to pick up languages fairly Quickly, particularly accents. I can tune into accents very easily, relatively easily, um, and pick up melodies quickly as well because of it's just a, like a musician's ear. So that's one one element of it. But also, there's a kind of musicality to certain kinds of writing, and it's funny. I hadn't even thought of that, but uh, yeah, I'm sure it has had some kind of impact on it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's almost like an album of songs because each chapter has its own sort of flavor the book is cohesive it doesn't jump from one tone to the other but uh, yes it, each chapter has its own sort of set of experiences here is my my question the book is written beautifully the prose is very beautiful and sometimes at least in my experience i'm just going to throw out the idea and see what, how you feel or think about the the question as I was reading the book, I just had this sense that you are trying to protect people. You're trying to protect people's feelings. You're, you're trying to not to upset people. And the compensation for that is to have a beautiful prose. So you have a beautiful prose, but you are not talking about anything drastic. So then to protect mm -hmm. people, this, this was how I, how I started thinking. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think if you're talking about something that quite often raises people's hackles, so like talking about racism, for example, try and talk about racism to white people, you definitely you often get a defensive response. So I try to find a way to break through that with humor, with um, with stories, as you say, to try and bypass the sort of egoic reaction that uh, I felt that a lot of people would have and, and even just reading about Islam I think there are a lot of there's so many prejudices against Islam that many readers who maybe maybe have some of those prejudices without maybe even knowing uh, that they have them might start feeling a little bit like yeah but what about this and so I'm a very argumentative person actually as my kids will tell you and everyone in my family will tell you but what I found is that arguing doesn't necessarily get you to 
a place of resolution. You know, it can be important to do, and some there's sometimes that there's no other option. You have to argue. Like if you're a lawyer and you're standing up in court, you have to argue your case, you know. It might be that black and white. It might be that um, confrontational. But I think to try and do things with diplomacy, for example, being a mother and talking to, to my children, I don't manage to do this all the time, but there are ways of conveying an order which are going to be more likely to get a positive response. And then there are ways of doing it that are more likely to get a reaction. So if you are kind of clever about it, you can kind of, mm, okay, I'm just going to phrase it a little bit more like this way. And then I'm going to bypass that kind of reaction and hopefully get somewhere because that's what you want to do. I mean, there are people who write in a sort of inflammatory way because maybe they want to get that reaction. And and I think sometimes it's important to 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 bring something up to the surface. It's like bringing on a fever, you know, like if you have a sickness in your body, sometimes the only way to get it out is to, to bring on a fever and like sweat it out kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's quite a drastic move. And it's what it's what you would go to after you've tried lots of other things. Usually, you know, this is why they say that rioting is the voice of the of the oppressed. I think it was Martin Luther King. I'm probably misquoting him there. But it's it's when somebody hasn't been listened to for a very long time, then they will start to scream because it's it's frustrating trying to talk to somebody and they don't listen, right? But yeah, depending on the situation, depending on the, the, the context, there might be a way to get to that place of resolution or of, of helping someone to understand where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. I think that's what my whole my whole life's work has been around to do with translation, for example. Translating text from one language to another is not so different, really, to what I've been trying to do with this book, which is to sort of convey certain ideas that I have as a Muslim to an audience that might not be Muslim or who may just not be aware of, of certain kind of situations that I want to talk about, you know. So to try and refine that and make it as to try and make it pleasant as well. I think this is a thing. If you're a writer, you are you are asking people, strangers, to give you maybe three, four hours of their lives. And to me, that's a that's a big gift. That's a very generous gift for somebody to give you. Um, without knowing you, you know, they've also paid for the pleasure of doing it. So, you know, you want to reward them for for that um, investment of their time you don't want to leave them oh, sweetheart this is this is not three four hours this is at least 10 hours and for really? me i'm a very slow reader probably 12 hours and then and, even and more then... so if you're very um, very gosh flattered and privileged that you slow. i take my time i i sleep less and i read more so therefore i spend more more time as i'm hearing i'm as i'm listening to you it feels like you are very proud muslim and unapologetic so i'm thinking is this your whiteness helps this or doesn't help it? How do you see it? Am I reading it right? It's an interesting question. I think there are times when I feel empowered to make certain statements, I think, because of my whiteness. And some people even said to me, you know, around about the time that George Floyd was murdered last year, I was like, I was really debating, should I try and write an article about this? I mean, this is the perfect time to sort of bring my point of view in but I also felt like I don't want to take up space here because this is a really important 
moment that it, you know, I don't want to be going in there going, well, here's my point of view as a white person. But then a friend of mine who's black American, she said, people will listen to you. People will listen to you. So that's, that's, un it's a very sad indictment of our, our judgment of people by based on their, their color, uh, their ethnicity. But being aware of that situation can give me license sometimes. So, for example, just today I was in a police station. Um, I was trying to get my my residency card for Spain, and it brings on such anxiety for me. But today, I, alhamdulillah, I was actually okay. And, you know, my husband is Iranian, and a couple of times I just noticed people would just sort of stare at him. You know, they just had this glare. And I know they wouldn't do that to me. You know, like he's he's backing his car in and he's made a bit of an awkward maneuver with the car. And some guys are standing on the corner just sort of glaring at him, just staring like, what are you doing? And I think, would he do that if that was me? Probably not. And so and I glare at him because I'm allowed to, you know. It's like, okay, you're going to do that? I'm going to do it back to you, see how it feels. <laughs> I mean, what is it? I don't know what comes of that, that sort of standoff. It's a bit of a fruitless exercise. Maybe I should have just ignored it. But there are moments there where you kind of feel like, okay, this is an opportunity where I could actually maybe push somebody's perception a little bit, you know? And I think I do, I feel like I do have some kind of license because of that. But I also acknowledge that it's a very tragic thing that we have got to that situation, you know, that some people will be listened to more and some people's opinions will be valued more. And maybe I, maybe even I've got to that point where I have a strong voice because of all of that, because of a whole lifetime of, I mean, even though in other ways I have felt that my voice has been restricted as a woman, for example, as a Muslim in non-Muslim spaces, often I felt like I had to kind of, you know, sh shut up a little bit or, or kind of edit my voice or not speak up so much. But I think... I think knowing that, recognizing that people do pay more attention to what white people say has definitely given me, you know, it's made me sort of go, right, I'm going to use this. <laughs> I'm going to use it. But I'm going to try mm -hmm. and use it for, for the right reasons, I hope. Yes. <laughs> so um, I believe at this, I believe that in Muslim communities and in Muslim households, people are genuinely friendly. They're genuinely generous, friendly, and they are accepting. And I found uh, in non-Muslim or white, perhaps, they are, it's just always this skeptical that first I have to prove myself, then I just moving, moving ahead with whatever argument I'm putting out. It's a personal experience, but, um, but I wonder what would, would you like to see in white community in terms of having your experience to be acknowledged within the white community? What I would love to see change is, I would just love to see more generosity. I just think that that's a very, very simple thing that everybody is capable of doing. But again, it comes down to fear. And I think what Muslims have been trained in is give so that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand's doing, right? Give and don't worry about it going because it'll come back in another form or it'll come back in the it'll come back in the next world or it, it wasn't, wasn't meant for you, you know. And I think that's a really healthy way of approaching uh, wealth. So wealth distribution, you look at the... I mean, it happens also in the yeah. Muslim world. It's not necessarily only white people that do this, but, you know, I, I wrote a poem actually in, um, in a, a collection of poems that I'm going to bring out, inshallah, hopefully this year, inshallah, this year about um about being in iran 
and this this thing of of generosity and you know it's so extraordinary it blows your mind to be and I grew up in a Muslim household but still we're you know culturally European English it hasn't been so kind of deeply ingrained into us you go to an Iranian household or an Arab household or you know anywhere practically anywhere Turkey anywhere you go in the Muslim world people will just rush to give things to you and it bowls you over it can actually be overwhelming you can be like are they expecting something back or should I be like this and my behavior suddenly starts to feel really strange because I can't live up to that you know because you know like uh, I remember this lovely Egyptian woman who uh, used to live near me when I was growing up and I commented on her earrings and I said oh I like your earrings it's such a common thing for for like white culture you know white English people to do oh I like your earrings it's just like a nice comment She's like, oh, take them. She takes them off. She just yeah. presses them into my hand. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is the kind of thing that makes me feel really like, oh, gosh, I mean, uh, I've just taken something off of her and I didn't mean that to happen. It can make you feel actually quite um, embarrassed and uncomfortable until you kind of get used to the, you get into the flow of it and you start realizing actually people's doors are meant to be opened. They're meant, you know, tables are meant to be full. Plates are meant to be filled and shared. Food is meant to be shared. Like breaking bread, that's a very old you know, Christian idea of breaking bread together with people, that's mm-hmm. sacred, you know. And that's something that I feel it's its very sad when people um, start to be afraid of their um, provision. And it's a completely natural, ordinary human thing to do. But if you've been trained to work against that sort of, it's almost like learning how to tread water instead of letting it drink bring you down and drown you you learn how to stay afloat and stay in that kind of um in a dynamic space where you know money comes in money comes out food comes in food goes out it's not hoarding you know you don't mm-hmm. it's not coming to you so that you can stuff it away into a corner it's meant to be divided and it's meant to be distributed mm-hmm. and of course you do find white people who do this as well but it's something that is so culturally what's the word um ubiquitous you'll find mm-hmm. it so ubiquitously in the Muslim world you go to Malaysia you go to Morocco you could go to Tanzania anywhere you go it doesn't matter how rich or poor people are people can be very poor and be so generous absolutely and it's shocking absolutely. it's so shocking at first so that's mm-hmm. one thing I think would be would be wonderful to you know in an ideal world to to see more of that Yes, inshallah, inshallah. Uh, my last question, and then we go to the statement I was talking about. Uh, my editor, uh, Matin, told me that we read the book and we know that it's very descriptive. If you have a book coming out, a fiction? Um, actually, I have a, sh- a short story coming out in, uh, I think it's the next edition of Critical Muslim. And it's a comedy. It's like a darkly comic story. <laughs> Um, I do have a few books kind of um, rumbling away. I've had several novels on the back burner for years, but I don't think I'm going to finish them anytime soon. I have, I am thinking of putting together some of my a collection of short stories because, again, going back to 20 years, I should think, um, some of the, the ones that I feel most proud of and kind of dust them off a little bit and put them in, together into a, a collection because I think that's something that I'd like to see a lot more or I'd like to be part of an effort to improve the standard of work that's being produced by Muslims. Which is not to say that it's not good quality, but I think we can always raise it. You know, there's 
it's this ihsan thing like do it really well so mm-hmm. we do have we do have many many muslim scholars writers all of those but uh, at least happened to me as i have been in this space of knowing writers and knowing publishing houses and knowing scholars and all of those uh, they are not perhaps openly muslim uh, they are not owning it as a Muslim. They're owning it as a scholar, as an expert, as so, some subtext rather than attaching any re- religious connotations. I always wanted to mention this, that we read lots of books, uh, Martin and I. So some of the books, uh, for, for me at least, is like Hollywood books. You know, it's just so shallow, going through, is quick, a few hours, we are done. And too much sex, too much violence, blah, blah. And we, of course, do not <laughs> feature them in the show and some of the books are just you know scholarly it's just beautifully Dry. written but it's just so difficult to go through and to just turn the page. and some of the books are has analogy has deep meanings and has uh, reached proudly reached their muslimhood and also more deeper layers and meanings and i think invisible muslim is one of them no wonder is gaining momentum so Thank please you. stay put with me absolutely so you are watching to peace-mindedly we, we feature peaceful bridge makers this hour we talked to Medina Tenur Whiteman, author of The Invisible Muslim Journeys Through Whiteness and Islam. I do have the book with me. My sister keeps telling me you need to show the book. There you go. This is the book. And, and at the end of every program, we ask our guests to share something meaningful about peace, about kindness, about compassion. One of the reasons, at least there is a in, in the horizon that we are coming out of pandemic, hopefully, inshallah, that we are coming out and hopefully many, many other countries, including Iran, the Middle East, and less developed nations get have an access to, to vaccine. But at least in the US, UK, Europe, we are um, very, very gradually coming out of the this pandemic. But nevertheless, I think one of the biggest lessons is to really, to really understand and see how we can not only care for ourselves, but for neighbors, for our families, with, with love, with love, kindness, and compassion, with love, and I think that's that's the ingredients, um, in my opinion, ingredients for uh, whatever we do. Must we must include love and kindness? At the end of every program, we ask our guests to share a statement, a prayer, a childhood story, anything that they would like us to know and learn and listen related to peace and to kindness and compassion. And I'm sure that our authors absolutely will prepare. Okay, Medina, go ahead. Well, I wanted to actually share a poem by Rumi. Yeah, it's kind of on the topic of how to overcome racial injustice and hatred. So this is, this is how he, he puts it. Purify yourself of hatred and vanity. Polish your mirror, and that sublime beauty from the regions of mystery will flame out in your heart, as it did for the saints and the prophets. Then with your heart on fire with that splendor, the secret of the beloved will no longer be hidden. Beautiful. Thank you very much. I'm bringing my team to our screen. It was a fabulous conversation. Thank you and and have a blessed day. Khoda Hafiz. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.